We're in a series called The Biography of the Saints, and today, like I was last week, I was going to do the biography of Amy Simple McPherson, but early in the week, the Lord's like, no, it's because of current events and situations. Um, I want you to frame a message where you're just you're, you're calling people back home. You're calling people back home to the church, but back home to the gospel, the purity of the gospel, because in the days that could come, your faith is going to be the most important thing in your life. The gospel, if it is not centered in your very being, I don't want to get into fear-based stuff, but it could mean hardship, even destruction, if the gospel is not the number one thing. And so the Lord, early on this week, Monday, Tuesday, I knew I wasn't going to do Amy. I, I knew that there was this, this call to call people back to the gospel, the pure gospel of Jesus. And then the night of my birthday, I woke up early, early in the morning from this very vivid dream. And I don't necessarily have a whole lot of God dreams, but when I do, I pay attention. And I'm at this point in my spiritual walk where I'm able to discern the difference between a dream from the, from the Lord and a dream from pizza. Like I can tell the difference. You know, sometimes I'll have this like really disturbing, you know, spiritually impactful dream and I'm like all scared because like there's monsters and, you know, getting spiritually attacked and I wake up, I'm all freaked out and the Lord's like, that wasn't me. That was that horror movie you watched the night before. Okay. So I may, I know the difference between God's voice in a dream and again, pizza. And I know a lot of people get confused and maybe even deceived from an impression that they might get. But when God speaks, it can be heavy. It can be convicting. It can be forceful. You might even feel scared. But the underlying sensation when God speaks is a peace. And there is an answer. There's an answer there in the dream. There's a, there's a way. There's a promise. And if, there's, if you don't have a promise, if you don't have peace, if it is a fear that is unescapable, then guess what? That ain't the Lord. So regardless, I woke up and I was, I was rattled. I was shaken in this dream. And, this is, and I want to share it with you. I was about ready to, to, to give a sermon, to preach to Granite Creek. Um, the difference was is that the venue kept on shifting. The people were there in their seats, but the venue moved from one venue to another venue uh, like it just like morphed into different venues. It was, was kind of cool. So it wasn't necessarily about this place, 
But what it was, it was packed out. It was full of people. It was full of your friends that you've invited them to church. Lots of energy. There was just like this kinetic excitement and energy. There was so much life there. It was so powerful. You could really just feel and sense the presence of God. And I had a message to give, and it was burning inside of me. It was going to be a a fiery message that was going to bring life and hope to people. And the good news is, is that they wanted to hear it. Like they were hungry for the word of God. They wanted to receive it. They were good to go. They needed their life changed. And as I'm about ready to get up, there was a couple from the church, and I am not going to tell you who it was. But in the dream, there was a married couple from the church. They were ministering from the stage before I was about ready to get up. And, you know, they were praying and doing all this, you know, ministry stuff and worshiping. And then they started arguing. They started bickering on the stage in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. Started sniping. And it got to the point where In public, they were disrespecting each other. Holding your spouse in contempt will kill your marriage. Holding your spouse in contempt will hurt the church. And so as I'm seeing this, it was embarrassing. It was awkward. I mean, have you ever seen somebody get into a marriage fight, you know, in public? You know, you know how awkward that is? It is like, oh, okay. <laughs> this is like the worst. So there was like that awkward moment. And, you know, like in my mind, I like, oh my gosh, I got to do some damage control. I can fix this. God's bigger. I got this thing. I'm going to put a Band-Aid on it. I'm going to hang a hat on it. I can fix this problem. So I hop up there, and I'm looking at everybody, hordes of people, and they're all just kind of like, oh, that's awkward. And then I pick up my Bible, and I open it up. I'm going to read from the Word of God. And by the time I look up, everybody is just, they're just leaving. They're all leaving in droves. And I'm like, wait, don't go. I've got something important to tell you. And I'm like, we don't want to be here. Why would we want to be a part of this? And they all left. And it was me and one other person. Because that dissension in a marriage, that conflict in a marriage, grieved the Holy Spirit. And it was a horrible witness for a people that need to hear the gospel. what I mean it was really it was heartbreaking I just remember really being heartbroken at that in the dream I'm like what are you doing what is my response what what's the answer what what's going on all right I'll be transparent in the dream I didn't say what's going on I said what the hell's going on And one simple word, which was the response, which I believe is the answer, and that response was Galatians. 
I'm like, Galatians? What kind of answer is that? So I spent a lot of the week reading through Galatians. I read through it. I listened through it. Um, Galatians is a, a book in the Bible in the New Testament written by Paul. It's an epistle of Paul, and it is it's a unique letter. Paul never wrote like this to any other area. If you want to read it for yourselves, it doesn't require any interpretation. It's, it's straightforward. You know, you don't really need me. I actually even toyed around with the idea of just reading it to you straight, and that being my sermon. But I'd probably put some of you to sleep. When Galatians was written, Paul, Luke, Timothy, and Titus, those guys were all in Corinth together. And Paul is writing this letter to them. And he's lit up. Like he is not okay. It is a very, it is a very uh, correctional type of letter. He's, he's mad. He's flabbergasted. He's stunned about what the Galatians have done. And like what could they have possibly have done that's worse than the Corinthians? Well, let me tell you. Uh, get your Bibles out. Turn to Galatians. When Paul addresses them, he even pulls out the big guns. He has to establish his authority. If you remember your Bible, you know that Paul is not one of the original 12. He is apostle, an apostle that is later converted to Christianity. In fact, during Jesus' ministry, he was the super smart, intelligent, bright guy. He went to Harvard, and not only did he go to Harvard, his professor was a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, Paul is the best of the best. And he was persecuting the early church. He was the one that was downplaying the claims of Jesus. He didn't believe in this stuff. He, he will even go as far to say, you kind of have to read between the lines, but he's responsible for murdering Stephen. And so when he is writing this letter to the Galatians, whom he had once ministered to, whom he had once shared this gospel, and that community was transformed. Excuse me, that community was transformed. Galatia is not a city. It is, it's a, it's a territory. It's a, it's a county in, in Turkey. It's a big area. So he's writing to a lot of people all at once. And this community of people, they're going to be a, a mix of Jew, of a Jewish community and a mix of a Greek community. So he's writing to both. But what we do know is that early on, the Galatians in that community of Turkey, they received this gospel message and they were transformed. And like we said, been saying in the past, they were doing all of the stuff. They got, to, they got to play. They got to do the signs and the wonders and the miracles. It was glorious. And now something has changed. Like something is, has shocked Paul to the point where he, ha where he has to say, not only did I serve you, not only did I minister to you, but I am an apostle. I wasn't one of the disciples, 
but I was personally discipled by the resurrected Jesus. So he goes as far as to say that. He says, I got my instruction. No man taught me about Jesus. Jesus himself in the flesh taught me about Jesus. We think this took place in Arabia, and we think that his education with Jesus could have lasted three years. We don't know for sure. But what we do know from what he's saying is that Jesus himself told him the gospel. No earthly man did. So he's bringing out the big guns, and he starts off like this. Chapter 1, verse 3. Grace and peace to you from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Sounds super churchy, but this is, this is the gospel. This is pure and simple, unadulterated gospel message of Jesus Christ. And he opens with this for a very specific reason, as we're going to get into next. He then goes on to say, I'm, 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 I'm astonished. I'm flabbergasted. I'm, asto- I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ, he's talking about himself, and turning to a different gospel. Turning to a different gospel. I'm going to have you say it. We don't usually do this. Say, turning to a different gospel. Which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, and that we is Paul, Timothy, Titus, and Luke. That's a pretty big important we, right? But even if we, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. I'll say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. That's, that's really heavy language. Okay, I will translate this for you. And I'm not trying to be flippant or for shock value. I'm trying to tell you how it would have come across back then. If anybody is teaching you another gospel other than the gospel that is laid out here in the first few sentences, that Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, if there is a gospel other than that that these people are teaching them, teaching you, you tell them to go to hell. Like, that's how, that's how strong his language was. What in the world is Paul dealing with here? He's writing, again, from Corinth. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know what the Corinthians were dealing with. 
There was a lot of sexual immorality, a lot of partying going on. Uh, you could even go to church and have a sexy good time. Like, that's the, that was the context of Paul with dealing with the Corinthians. Like, they were so lost in a lot of different areas. But what in the world are the Galatians doing that gets Paul more fired up than writing to the, the Corinthians? Who is this faction? Who are these people that are teaching another gospel that is not a gospel at all? Who are these people? They are what we call the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of people that came into the early church and they said, Jesus is great. He is the Son of God. But if you want to get saved, you have to follow all the rules and check all the boxes or else you're not going to heaven. And this is what was being taught. This was being preached. It was like, you have to follow. Yeah, you can follow the teachings of Jesus. That's good. But what's really important is the law, is the Torah, is this thing that no one is able to follow, actually. And so this was being taught. And this is, these people, Paul would go as far as to say, are deceiving the church. They're bringing in divisions and, and distractions and factions and pride and arguing. It's, it's literally hurting the church. And, and again, Paul is flabbergasted that this is even taking place. And he will, in certain places, like, did I come and minister to you guys for nothing? Did you guys not receive anything? Did I do this all in vain? Okay, so this is kind of, let me, I will try to put this into a cultural context. Paul was so passionate about this one topic that he even called out one of the disciples. Remember last week I asked you guys, like, who's your favorite disciple or who's your favorite New Testament character? Most all of you said Peter. Why? Because Peter's a big knucklehead. We all can relate to Peter. But he's awesome. I mean, the interactions with Jesus and Peter are bar none. I mean, like, he gets discipled the most. He has, the, he has more encounters than the rest of them. He had this intimate connection with Jesus that was unique and maybe John probably didn't even have. And Jesus restored him after Peter denied him three times. So you would think that if anybody would have their act together after Jesus had ascended to the throne, it would be Peter. But he's still a knucklehead. He's still insecure. He still makes bad decisions. And Paul, who was not one of the twelve, calls Peter out publicly. It's a really interesting, uh, interesting scenario. Okay, this is what it looks like. So in the early church, um, they had what we call love feasts, and that's where they actually served communion. They didn't serve communion in our style where we, you know, where, well, we used to pass the thing. Now we got these little plastic things, and, you know, it works, right? Um, but the original setting is that you would have a dinner and you would have a feast 
and you would tell some stories and you would share your life. And at the end, you would remember the Lord's Supper at a table. It was very family feeling. So the early church was a lot like our church in that they had lots of potlucks and shenanigans. <laughs> and this is what was going on. There's a potluck. But in the early church, there were two potluck lines. There was a Gentile potluck line and a Hebrew kosher line. Which was completely acceptable because... You know, culturally and ethnically, there were Jews and they wanted to continue to observe their traditions. And I don't think there's anything wrong with observing your cultural traditions. But if you remember, Peter had this dream. He, too, had a vivid dream where from heaven, a big sheet, a big blanket full of all these tasty animals descended from heaven, shrimp and bacon lobster and crab and there was cheese on all of them and and so Peter's like oh what's this this is scary and you know what God's response to him when that dream took place he says you need to kill and eat like these unclean things are now going to become clean for you you will kill and you will eat and you will you get to move from the kosher buffet line over to the Gentile buffet line. Thank you, Jesus. And so he did. He was obedient. And Peter moved over to the Gentile buffet. And then the Judaizers came in. The Judaizers with their fancy clothes and their garbs and their rings and their money and their prestige and their education. They just walked right in and there was just this air about them that like if you're not doing it our way, you're not doing it the right way. There was a huge amount of social pressure that these guys were wielding. They were masters at social pressure. And even Peter in the presence of these prideful men, slipped. Hanging around certain people, he would eat shrimp. But when the Judaizers came in, well, then all of a sudden, he's the good, perfect kosher boy. And Paul saw this, and Paul called him out publicly and said, you're a hypocrite for doing this. God set you free from that law and now you're, now, you're, now you're just going back into slavery and you're being a terrible model for everybody else. It's, it's pretty bold. Like, I don't recommend it. But it is a bold statement. And again, he's dealing with this issue that is, well, it's destructive. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, You foolish Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let me say that. Who has bewitched you? Say that. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed and crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit? That's a capital S. This is the third member of the Holy Trinity. This is God. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law 
or by believing what you have heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, you are now trying to attain your goal by human effort. Underline that. Are you trying to obtain your goal? Are you trying to have understanding, proper theology? Are you trying to get ahead? Are you trying to get saved? By believing or by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it was really was for nothing, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you are good boys and good girls? I added that part. Because you observe the law? Okay, do you know why God does miracles? Do you know why God you know, like healed the gal's leg the first service? Do you know why that happened? Was it because she was good? But was it because she was morally upright? Was it because she had all of her boxes checked? Was it because she was observing the law? It had absolutely nothing to do with that. It's because God loved her, and he was willing, and he was able. She didn't deserve it. God did that. It was not a human will. Because you observe the law, or because you believe what you have heard. So let's go back to verse 1. Who has bewitched you? That's, have you ever been bewitched? That's a, I don't know, I, I like the word right now. Have you ever been bewitched? I have. Now, frankly, most of us can't relate to this story. Like, last time I checked, we don't have a bunch of Judaizers coming into our church, breeding dissension, and saying, if, you know, you guys are all going to hell because you eat bacon cheeseburgers. Last time I heard, no one's saying that. So we don't deal with that one. But you can still be bewitched. You can still accept or entertain another gospel that is no gospel at all. It's super easy to do. I have been bewitched in the past. Why is it so easy? Well, it's because the gospel is so simple. Like, I figured this thing out years ago. I figured out the gospel message of Jesus Christ when I was a kid. When I got saved at seven, I was able to figure it out. It's a simple message, and it's the most powerful thing that we do, and it's the thing that we have to continue to hold our hearts towards. But I have been bewitched. I have accepted another gospel that was no gospel at all. Probably one of the most notable times was in college when I started getting into philosophy. I took, a dig, I took a big, deep dive into existentialism. Existentialism is great. It's awesome. It gives me all the answers. It, when I start studying it, I get smarter than you guys. I know more than you when I get existentially deep. Man, it feels good to be smarter than you. 
That was my other gospel, existentialism. And I went, I went further in. I went deeper down. I got smarter. I took, I just like, like, wow, man, my mind is exploding. I went further in and deeper down, 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 down. Hey, do you know what's at the bottom of that? Nothing. Darkness. Death. One of the other gospels, there was no gospel at all for me, uh, was the study of world religions. I still like it. I still study it. Like, I'm a student at heart. But there was this moment where I'm all, like, in experimental mode, right? I'm going to experience, I want to experience and, you know, be open-minded about this stuff. So I did a deep, all long dive into world religions. Never walked away from my faith. But I'm like, wow. That saying from Confucius sounds a lot like what Jesus would say. And Buddha said it this way, but Jesus said it this way. They're very similar. It's, you know, comparative religions, right? That's what they teach you. And sure, truth is truth, and they do have some things that are in common. But there's only one Jesus, and there's only one salvation, and he's the only one that died for me and for you for the forgiveness of our sins. So you can do a deep, long dive into world religions, but you want to know what's there at the bottom of it? Nothing. Darkness and death. There is only life in the gospel message of Jesus. So have you ever been bewitched? And why do we let it happen to us? I'll tell you why. It's because our minds, the human brain, is wired for novelty for something that's new, a new expression, a new twist. Again, maybe even learning something that nobody else knows, and you have the secret knowledge all deep down inside of you. Like, you have the answers. Everybody else is a bunch of idiots. Our mind will gravitate towards novelty. But there's nothing novel about the gospel. It's pure it's simple, it's transformative, it's power, so quit getting bored with it. It's all you need. If you are bored with this message of the cross that Jesus died on that for the forgiveness of your sins, if you're bored with that message, that very simple message that he is saving you from a present evil age, or then you need to work on your faith. You need to not, not work on all these things that you can do to better yourself. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That You've got to find your affections back to the cross. Everything else is another gospel that is no gospel at all. So what does bewitched do? Years ago, what was bewitching the church was New Age doctrine, that seeped in. He dealt well with that. Flushed it all out. It was horrible stuff. Have you ever been bewitched by New Age doctrine? It ain't good. It might be fun. You might connect some points. But it's evil. It will lead you down to dark paths that you don't want to go to. Has that ever bewitched you? Have you ever used that instead of Jesus? Let me ask you this and bewitching. Have you ever thought that 
what Jesus did was good, but maybe he needs a little help because he doesn't quite understand the situations. Well, yeah, I understand the gospel message of Jesus Christ, but it's too simple. I need to overcomplicate this thing so that I can answer this problem in my life. I need to overcomplicate the gospel and so that I can figure out what's going on in this world. I do want to talk about this. Kind of came to me first service and I'm like, uh, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Michael Jones did a great message on Augustine, St. Augustine. And St. Augustine uh, is like right up there with Paul. Like he almost takes second fiddle to Paul, but his writings are, they're not canon, right? They're good, but they're not this, right? Just, they're good. And Augustine was dealing with a situation in North Africa when Muslim forces were beginning to take over North Africa. North Africa used to be a Christian hub. It was, it was huge. That's where Augustine lived. He lived in Hippo in North Africa. And him seeing what was going to take place in the future, him knowing the gospel, I'll probably get in trouble for this comment, but Jesus wasn't good enough. Jesus could not answer that question for him. And so Augustine developed the theology of justifiable war. That's not in the Bible, by the way. That's Augustine. So what can bewitch you? What is either a gospel that is not the gospel? Or what is something that, well, this is not good enough, so we're going to add to it. We're going to overcomplicate things. What, what, what has bewitched you in the past? Has it been a political party? Has it been a philosophy? Has your own self-development been your own gospel? What has bewitched you? What has taken away your fascination of what Jesus has done for you on the cross? What, take, what takes up more headspace and time and energy that you are learning about and focusing on than this? Do you see how easy it is to do? You see why Paul would be so frustrated and saying, you guys have heard the pure, unadulterated gospel, and now you're giving your hearts to something else. Chapter 3, verse 26 you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is either neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, I'm going to add rich and poor, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a huge statement. Like this tears down all of the walls, all of the labels, all of the categories, all of the parties that we have this incredible ability to put ourselves into. Paul, he dismantles it all. He says, no, there are no Jews. There are no Greeks. There are no rich people. There are no poor people. There's no slaves. There's no freemen. And the most, no one talks about this, but the most powerful statement for the rights of women 
is right here. There's no male or female. We're all equal. As long as we are in Christ. Now catch this. If you belong to Christ, I should make you all raise your hands, but I won't. I belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's a big statement for them. Maybe it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. But man, for those Judaizers, that would have offended the socks off of them. Because what he's saying is, you're an heir. You're now, if you believe in Christ, you're right in there. You have been grafted in. You are an adopted son and daughter. You're, you're, you're Abraham's seed. And you know, these people, they're most likely Greek or helots. And Paul is saying, I don't know, that Zeus is not your father. God's your father. That ethnicity is, that's just your ethnicity. But you are now a father. You're, you're a son of Abraham. Every promise in the word of God that was promised to God's chosen people is now available for you and me. So ethnically, I don't even know how much these days. They're the ones that are doing the deep dive into uh, Ancestry.com. <laughs> but ethnically, I've got a little Jew in me somewhere. Right? But not enough to get me to the kosher table. <laughs> not, a, not enough to let me into the party. Like, they're not going to let me in. I might be able to get so far with the last name, but once they figure out that I'm mostly English, I don't know. Once they, <laughs> you know, God's got a sense of humor because, well, anyway, I'll leave it alone. Once they figure that out, that, well, there's just this hierarchy thing. They're just not going to let me in. I mean, unless I go through all of their hoops and jump through all of their laws and do all of these things and, and convert, but I know they're still going to look down at me if I ever did that but not God. God says that you and I are Abraham's seed, that we're chosen if we believe in Christ, if we believe in this very, very simple message. Paul is absolutely brilliant, by the way. I don't know if you've figured this out, but when he's talking to these people, again, he, this is chapter 4, verse 20. I wish I could be with you in person, face to face, so that I could change my tone. He knows that when he's writing this letter, and incidentally, he says, I'm writing this in my own hand. Usually he had somebody else write his stuff. I'm writing this in my own hand. I'm so ticked off at you guys. I wish I could be with you now so that I could change my tone so that we could work this thing out face to face because I am perplexed about you. Chapter 5, verse 1. For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen? This is pure freedom. Any other freedom that our world offers up, any other freedom that our governments offer up, is another gospel. It's, it's a counterfeit 
freedom that God offers us. It will never satisfy. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Who sets you free? I love my country. I love my freedom. But George Washington didn't set me free. My spiritual freedom is from Christ alone. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Down to verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressed itself through love. So what really matters right now, if you want to boil all this thing down, it's not what you do, it's faith. And how do you know that your faith is lining up and that you're walking in step with the, fear, with the Spirit? Well, it's expressed through love. Okay, if your faith is not loving, then guess what? You don't have faith. You were running such a good race. Who cut out on you and kept you from observing the truth? Here's the funny thing about truth. Like when I was, when I was hip deep into philosophy, existentialism, I convinced myself that I knew the truth. Isn't that funny how we can bewitch and deceive ourselves? We can actually lie to ourselves and believe our own lies. Paul says, who cut in and kept you from observing the truth? So the, the huge irony is that these Judaizers were truth experts. They were law experts. They, they, they literally had everything planned out. Verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up into a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Real quick, who's your neighbor? It's everybody. It's Ukraine. It's Russia. It's Claremontians. It's Upland people. It's even people from Fontana. I'm sorry, I picked up. I'm sorry. I don't know. That was, that was terrible. I'm sorry. Yeah. Got to get some levity into this message, right? The entire law is summed up in this single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Hence my dream. Married folk, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will destroy each other. So, I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of of the sinful nature. Down to verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature, they're obvious. Okay, it's a no-duh, but he still has to tell them. Why? Because they're bewitched. 
He's got a funny saying. Sin makes you stupid. So he gets to tell these obvious things, right? These are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. All right. Uh, those are all kind of straightforward. You guys know by now that witchcraft is that, like that's a sin, right? Um, debauchery, you guys, you guys know that by now? Like debauchery is like that's sinful, right? Hopefully you know that. Sexual immorality, yeah. Now here's the brilliance of Paul. Because when he says this to the Galatians, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. Uh, later he'll go on and say, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. These are all things that largely we don't deal with. Okay, at any given time, there's somebody in a congregation that is involved in sexual immorality. That's just like, that's just human nature. At any given time, that's taking place. But not the entire church. See, in Corinth, it was rampant. These issues should be directed at Corinth. And not Galatia. Galatia didn't have this problem. Galatia was not struggling with these immorality issues. They were struggling with legal issues. Okay, and I need you to catch this. This is so important. So when this is said, the Galatians are like, yeah, of course not. We're not going to be sleeping around. Yeah, of course not. We're going to be having orgies. Yeah, of course not. Debauchery and drunkenness. We're not doing that. Right? That's not their issue. But sandwiched in between is the Galatian issue. Hatred. Discord. Jealousy. Fits of rage. Selfish ambition. Dissensions. And factions. Why is Paul brilliant? Because he lumps those things that we so easily fall into with the worst sins that we could possibly think of, and he, equals, he equates them as the same thing. Dissensions and debauchery are the same thing. Discord and witchcraft are the same thing. But the fruit of the Spirit, here's the answer. Paul just told you what's wrong with you. Here's the answer. Incidentally, in this series that we're doing on fleshing out and bringing to the surface what your personal calling is. Are you a prophet? Are you a teacher? Are you an evangelist? Are you a pastor? To figure out what category of calling you fall under. And even as we pour a little gasoline on your spiritual gifts as we're looking at these things and practicing these things. The next and third and final step to your calling and your gifts, there must be fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And here it is right here that Paul talks about. But the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, 
forbearance, and everybody's favorite, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified their sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited and provoking and envying one another. What's your Russian or your, your Chechen friend's name again, Dad? Sesla. Sesla is a, a young man that my dad mentored in, in Russia. And he is Chechen. So thank God there was a believer in Russia that said, these Chechen people who we've been told to hate, well, he's my brother. He is my neighbor. Because somebody viewed this Chechen Muslim as his neighbor, well, this man's life was changed. But there was so much anger and dissension and hatred and fits of rage, so much bottled up inside of this man that the only thing that would set him free was the gospel. And he would get his Bible and he would read it out loud, hard and long. He would wake other people visiting up by reading the word of God out loud. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature. So he, he would get up in the mornings and the evenings, and he would crucify his sinful nature. He would crucify the hatred and the rage and the ambition and the, the jealousy and the discord. And he'd have to like purge it out of, him, out of his system. And he, he said, like, if, I, if, I don't, if I don't crucify my hatred, then it will destroy me. So I have, to, I have to read this word of God out loud and declare it over my life or my rage will destroy me. This is a young man that, that experienced things that you and I probably can't even comprehend. Probably did things that you and I can't possibly comprehend. But when the gospel message of Jesus Christ gets a hold of somebody, it saves them and it frees them and it transforms them. But it ha we have to crucify this stuff. So let me end, Landon, come on up. Let me end with this. Let's, again, that question. Have you ever been bewitched? Have you ever took a doctrine, an idea, a philosophy, a party, a way of life that is another gospel? Are you doing it now? Do you know that the Lord wants to call you home to his pure gospel. Don't get bored with it. That very simple statement that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, to deliver you from an evil age, that message, that, that's good enough. That saves you. Believing that, when you hear that, believing that saves you. Are you finding yourself imprisoned by bitterness and contempt? Do you know that praying this prayer will save you and free you from those emotions? From that spiritual bondage? 
Are you stuck in the prison of contempt for your spouse? The only person that can free you is Jesus. Counseling will help. But Jesus is the only one that saves. To sum up what Paul is communicating in this message is that it is not by a human's will or accomplishments that we're saved. Why don't you grab your element? And I'll use this as the illustration for that. If you've ever done your communion and you pulled out your element and said, I took communion and I saved myself. That's another gospel. Like you performing that act and saying, I did this. If you've ever said, I did this, then that's another gospel. And it is no gospel at all. Because you did not do it. You did not save yourself. Your morality isn't good enough. Jesus did it. You did not say, I'm saving myself by going to the table. No. Jesus saved you by inviting you to the table. This is his body, which is broken for you. You are a part of it, but you are his hands and feet. You belong in this body. You belong to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who saved you from hell. Receive the body of Christ. Again, this is very simple. Without the shedding of innocent blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. might be able to come up with some great answers and some great systems but this is the only thing that washes away all of your sins and the beautiful thing about this cup is that when you receive it you are in Christ and he is in you you are his heir you are the seed of Abraham you are a chosen one Paul would say this to the Galatians and he would say this to us the gospel salvation is not about what we do the gospel our salvation is not about what we have accomplished it's not about what we do. The gospel message, the pure gospel message, is all about what he has already done for us. It's a really small nuance, but we have to get it. This cup is about what he has done for us, not about what we have done for him. Receive the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and become a saint today.
God bless you guys. Sorry for keeping you a little later than normal, but we really needed to take some time to pray today. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. He cause His face to shine upon you, to light up your day. May He be gracious towards you, turning towards you in your times of confusion. May the Lord God fill your home with peace, a peace that transcends all of the craziness that's in your personal life, a peace that transcends even the chaos in our world. Choose His peace and replace that fear with the joy of the Lord. God bless you guys. Have a great week in the Lord. See you soon.